2: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. As many of you know, I love reading through old newspaper archives, which is the source of many of the topics that I present to you monthly. And today's story is no exception. It's one that I stumbled across probably 10 or 12 years ago. It's really hard to say. Now, I don't recall what I was doing at the time, but I wrote the following on a scrap piece of paper. Sky Battle with Hammer, May 15th, 1928, Frechette, Hammer, Plane, and Anderson. You know, just some key words to possibly research someday. Then every couple of years, I come across that same slip of paper again, but I quickly reject the researching of the topic further. And I thought that it was probably just one of those stories that would be in the news one day and, you know, forgotten the next. When news broke of that German wing's co-pilot who deliberately crashed flight 9525, killing all aboard, I decided it was finally time to do some further research on the Sky Battle with Hammer story. And what I found was far more interesting than I could have ever imagined. The true date of the beginning of the story was May 14th, not the 15th as I had written down, of 1928. An 18-year-old man named Clarence René Frechette hired 28-year-old pilot Harry Anderson to fly him from Roseville to Pontiac, Michigan. Since this was the early days of manned flight, the anticipated flight time was about one hour. Today, you could easily drive that distance in less time. Initially, all went well with the flight. Then suddenly, out of the blue, at an elevation of about 2,000 feet, which is 6 tenths of a kilometer, Prechette pulled out a hammer and started bashing Anderson in the skull with it. He was knocked unconscious, and the plane was sent into a downward death spiral. Observers on the ground initially thought that what they were witnessing was part of an aerial acrobatic show. That is until they realized that the plane was headed straight for the ground. Suddenly, at about 200 feet or 60 meters, Harry Anderson regained consciousness and quickly did all that he could to save the plane. He was able to right the flying machine, but not before the landing gear had made contact with the ground. The landing gear snapped off the fuselage and the plane tumbled several times before it came to rest on the grounds of, get this, it came to rest on the grounds of the State Hospital for the Insane. Staff at the hospital immediately ran to the wreckage to pull out the two men. Frechette was still clinging to the handle of the hammer, although its head had been broken off in the crash. Miraculously, both survived and were taken to the hospital for care. The press reported that neither was seriously injured, but I'm not sure what they considered serious injuries because Pilot Anderson had a fractured skull and was missing so many of his teeth that the doctors would not let him be questioned at length by the police. That is pretty serious to me. Investigators tried to figure out why Frechette did this, but he refused to answer any of their questions they did find in his clothing a letter addressed to one Georgia Pardee of Pontiac that in part read, quote, Death is my message, sweetheart. A letter to his mother indicated that Frechette was employed by the Pacific Coast Aero Circus as an exhibition pilot. It was also reported that Frechette had no need to hire Anderson to fly into Pontiac. That's because he already had a plane that he had piloted and he stored it in a nearby hangar. In court, the prosecution made the case that Frechette had intended to kill Anderson and then steal the plane. The defense argued that Anderson had suddenly frozen at the controls, so Frechette had no choice but to grab the hammer and start swinging away to break him free and regain control of the airplane. As you can probably guess, Frechette was found guilty of the crime and he was sentenced to serve a six to 10 year sentence in state prison. As a side note, while researching the story, I noticed that Wikipedia claims that the first skyjacking occurred on February 21st of 1931 in Peru. Frechette, if you consider what he did to be a hijacking, appears to really have been the first one. Per the Washington Post on October 16th of 1928, quote, local authorities believe Frechette is the first person ever sent to prison as an air robber. Now, normally, this would be the end of the story, and at first that's what I thought it was. I mean, what else could top a guy going berserk while flying over the state mental hospital? Well, I think Frechette may be one of the few that somehow managed to make an already bizarre story even more absurd. Fast forward to February 7th of 1935. Frechette, who had just been paroled 11 months earlier, was just about to complete a 2,000 mile or 3,200 kilometer drive from Pontiac to California. Upon reaching the town of Truckee, which is located on the Nevada California border, he was pulled over by the police. But this wasn't your normal stop for speeding or some other minor infraction. Instead, the police believe that Frechette may have killed his employer back in Michigan. The fact that he was driving a car owned by his boss's mom may have incriminated him, but when they popped the trunk open, they found all the proof they ever needed. There, right in front of them, was the body of a man who had been shot to death. For some unknown reason, Frechette opted to drive cross-country without ever ditching the victim. Frechette and his three passengers were immediately arrested, although the others were soon released. So here's what happened. On the night of January 29th of 1935, Frechette was riding with his boss, 24-year-old truck line operator Robert Brown. They stopped in Howell, Michigan to grab a bite to eat, and they got back in the car to continue along their journey. Brown supposedly started to brag about his great success with women, and that's when Frechette told him there was one girl he could never have. That was his girl, Grace Curran, a Kalamazoo laundry worker, and he had been dating her for about two months. Brown then replied that she had, in fact, been one of his conquests, to which Frechette just erupted in anger. In his later statement to police, he said, quote, I knocked him down. He crawled to the car and I reached into his pocket and grabbed that gun. He continued, I grabbed his hand as he pointed it at me. I don't know whether it was his finger or mine, but the gun fired twice. A bullet hit him in the head. That's when he calmly tossed Brown's limp body into the trunk, later admitting that he had no clue as to whether the victim was still alive or not. Frischet just knew that if he was caught, he would almost certainly spend the rest of his life in jail, and there was no way he was going to let that happen. What he did next was odder than odd. Instead of trying to ditch the car or dispose of the body, he drove back to Pontiac and slept the night away. The next day he drove to Kalamazoo, picked up his girlfriend Grace, and they went to see a movie. She was clueless as to the contents of the car's trunk. The next day, Frechette decided it was time to hit the road. His plan was to drive out to California ditch the car and its contents, and hop a boat to China. Upon reaching Chicago, he sent a package to Miss Curran. Inside was a letter that said, quote, You will never see me again. In time, you will find out why. He also included a ring and other jewelry that belonged to her. On Tuesday, February 5th, Frechette mailed a second letter to Grace which stated, quote, Did I fix, Bob? Keep it secret, dear, as my life depends upon it. You will hear more about it later. On the same day, he robbed two drugstores and a restaurant for a total of $41. That'll be about $710 today. Upon reaching Salt Lake City, he parked the car and its ghastly contents on the street while he went into a dance hall to groove the night away, as they say. It was while he was in Salt Lake City that he picked up his three passengers at $6 each to help defray costs. They included a miner named John Rivas, one Mrs. Victor Messenger, and her four-year-old son Raymond. Along the remainder of the trip, Frechette happily played the radio while politely engaging his passengers in conversation. He explained that the reason for his driving across the country was in an effort to gain more customers for the trucking company that he owned. It was in Elko, Nevada, that Frechette made a blunder in his getaway plan. He had sent a telegram to Robert Brown's father asking that $50 be wired to a Sacramento hotel. The message was signed, Robert. His dad was suspicious and reported to the police that he believed his son had been murdered. So on the eighth day of Frechette's cross-continental journey, he drove right into the trap that the California State Highway Patrol near Truckee had set up to catch him. The police asked an unsuspecting Frechette and his passengers to exit the vehicle and come into the station to warm up. Meanwhile, One of the officers went outside and pried open the trunk to discover its gruesome contents. The next day, he was quoted as saying, I'm sorry I killed Brown during that fight. I was in such a violent rage that I hardly remember what happened. When he boasted that he had relations with a girl that I was going with, I saw red and flew at him two Michigan officers took the train out to California to escort Frechette back home for trial. Their means of transport back to Michigan was the same exact car that Frechette had driven west containing the body. Initially, Frechette planned to claim self-defense at trial, but that idea was quickly squashed when it was determined that the murder weapon had been stolen from a Chelsea, Michigan gas station. It had been reported missing shortly after Frechette had left the station six days before the murder. Frechette really had no choice. He was forced to admit that he had stolen the gun. It took a jury six and a half hours to reach a verdict, and on March 28, Clarence Frechette was found guilty of murder in the first degree. His punishment was to spend the rest of his life in Michigan State Prison. Now, Normally, that would be the end of the story, but it wasn't. There is one more little piece to this bizarre story. 33 years later, on May 6th of 1968, Frechette was once again in the national news. You see, the Michigan Supreme Court ordered that it be granted a new trial. That's because the judge in the 1935 trial failed to instruct the jury to disregard lie detector evidence that had been presented. But a new trial was out of the question because nearly all the evidence and court records have been lost over time. As a result, Praschette was ordered released from prison. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Anything wrong with your
1: feet? Need some Adler shoes or anything? Need some new shoes? Adler? Adler. 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 It's a one-minute commercial with five highly trained announcers all screaming at once. My friend says, what has Adler got that any other shoe store has not? Well, he has me to sell shoes. Secondly, Adler has elevators, shoes that make men almost two inches taller in standard. It has a complete assortment of styles, sizes, leathers, and colors in every type of shoe... There isn't a there isn't a normal man in New York. He can't fit perfectly right out of stock. Except maybe the guy in the Andy Gump strip in the news. The guy with the two left feet. How are you, Hogan? Is that a new suit? A lot better than the other one. New shoes? Adler shoes? I get your rate, kid. Get you 1% off. Well, what with taxes it put back on? You know about Adler's long fellow, Hogan? You're a big kid. Six feet are over and you have big feet. These are swanky shoes. Make your feet look smaller. But they're comfortable. Nothing squeaks. Nothing bites. You're happy. You sing. <laughs> You're nuts. Just go in and buy the shoes and walk out. And keep your mouth shut. A-D-L-E-R. Of course he makes a thin man too for thin meat. Thin feet. Thin meat. That's that new maid I have up the house. <laughs> Slices off the bottom half of nothing and parboils it. Adler's shoes come in widths E to 6E. That is the wide guy shoes do. Any kind of foot you have, son. Bringing in old man Adler, who still spell his name, A-D-L-E-R. Bring a little dough with you. Not an awful lot. You get a pair of shoes. And, uh, good shoes. Good shoes. He still had a lot of rubber sole shoes. A lot of rubber. Uh, made before BP, I guess. Before Priorities. And, uh, better get around there, though, if you want rubber sole shoes. Mr. Adler, uh, has no more resources in this line. Twenty Adler
2: stores in the metropolitan area. Twenty. That commercial for Adler elevator shoes is from the April sixteenth, nineteen forty-two episode of Here's Morgan. That's the voice of Henry Morgan that you heard, and it was a fifteen-minute ad lib show that ran on WR radio on the Mutual Broadcasting System. Adler elevator shoes for men were the shoes that made you quote taller than she is. The secret to these shoes were the thick lifts or insoles that were hidden under the heel, which made the wearer up to 2 inches or 5 centimeters taller. Just as some women wear high heels to give them additional height, Adler Elevator shoes worked in a similar way, except that the additional height is hidden inside the shoe instead of on the outside. Morgan basically ripped into Jesse Adler every time on the air, constantly referring to him as Old Man Adler. He also twisted the scripted commercials to such an extreme that Adler threatened to pull the sponsorship of the show. That, of course, was until the sales of elevator shoes went through the roof. I was surprised to find that you can still purchase Adler elevator shoes online. The shoes are custom-made in the USA to your foot and aren't exactly cheap, but may be worth the extra cost if you'd like a little extra height, or maybe one of those people has one leg that's a little bit longer than the other. Once you've decided to purchase, Adler will send you a set of casting socks to create a mold of your feet. At first, I thought these socks were coated in plaster of Paris, but they're actually made with a water-curable polyurethane. Once they're hardened, you send them back and they create shoes to perfectly fit your feet. Check it out at adlershoes.com. In other news... Red Fork, Oklahoma resident Jack Van Zant was arrested on June 24th of 1931 after getting into an argument with his mother-in-law. He was held on $2,500 bail, which is around $38,000 today. The charge? Maiming. What did he do? He cut off her nose. Yes, you heard that correctly. He chopped off her old schnozola. He pled not guilty to the charge, although that makes me wonder how else she could have lost her nose. I really doubt that it just fell off by itself. In 1945, 42-year-old Victor Simarco was arrested in New York City for failure to pay $1,225, or nearly $16,000 today, in alimony to Mrs. Elizabeth Doyen. He'd apparently been married to her for 11 years and later divorced. He was thrown in alimony jail, but protested his innocence. Quote, I never saw this lady before. Yeah, likely story. Anyway, then a 47-year-old man named William Doyen appeared before the court claiming that he was her ex-husband. He did so because he wanted, quote, no man to carry my burdens. I want no innocent man in jail. But Mrs. Boyan insisted that Samarko was her ex-husband, not the man who's claiming to be so. Samarko became so enraged by her claim that he challenged her attorney to a fight outside the courtroom. So the judge took the two Doyans into his chambers, where Mr. Doyan proceeded to tell Mrs. Doyan things about the marriage that only he could know. She was finally convinced and said, quote, I made an honest mistake. So Marco threatened to file suit for $25,000 for his false arrest. And in the last story for today, six students from the Santa Rosa Junior College in California found themselves in a bit of hot water on April 24th of 1960. The students, one female and five male, dressed up in Roaring's 20s style clothes for the school's annual Character Day. The 19-year-old woman wore a classic flapper outfit, while the five guys ranging in age from 18 to 21 went for the classic mobster look of long coats, hats, and sunglasses. To complete their costumes, they carried an arsenal of toy guns that included two cap pistols, two pellet guns, a submachine gun, and a sawed-off shotgun. They invited a photographer from a local newspaper to accompany them as they pretended to rob the Santa Rosa branch of the Bank of America. The students made the dumb mistake of not informing the bank that it was all a game. So a teller was handed a note along with a $1 bill demanding change for the dollar. In exchange, the teller played along and gave them two 50-cent pieces. Next thing you know, another teller screams in panic, and a bank official called the police. As they exited the rear entrance of the bank, all six were immediately arrested. The FBI then booked them on federal bank robbery charges. Now, none could post the $5,000 bail and had to spend the weekend in the Sonoma County jail before they were transferred to Sacramento for a hearing before a U.S. commissioner. It took about a month for it all to be worked out, but all the charges against the six students were eventually dropped. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one that you just heard on my website. That's uselessinformation.org, uselessinformation.org, and the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. You can do it for free through iTunes or just about any other podcasting indexing service. You can like the show on Facebook by doing a quick search for the Useless Information podcast. As for my invention that I mentioned at the end of the last podcast, the Kickstarter campaign, well, it just never quite gelled. So I'm probably going to pull it within the next week or so. I do know that a number of listeners were quite generous with their pledges, and I truly, truly do appreciate what they did. So a big thank you goes out to all of you. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. <laughs>